Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. Hey, y'all. It's Elizabeth, and I'm excited to be joined today by a new guest co-host, Catherine Bacall. Catherine is a licensed counselor and minister at Citizens Church. Catherine, how are you doing today? I am doing great. You're doing Monday great. morning. Come on, Monday mornings. It's fun to have you here. This is going to be a really fun conversation that we're going to have because today, Catherine and I are having a conversation with Dr. Sandra Glon, who is a professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary and my former professor. This is going to be lovely. <laughs> She has authored and co-authored several books, including her latest one, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament, which we will be diving into today. Dr. Glan, thank you for joining us. How is life going for you at the beginning it's of the semester? It's my pleasure. Yes. It's great since I get to see your face. Yeah. It's so fun for a teacher to see their students uh, thriving Yes, to, to join them in their ministries. You used to have to come into my classroom and enter my space. And now you invite me to your space. It's very fun. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yes. You see that we're, you get to see that we're still using it. We're still using yeah. what we've learned. And so that's always a fun thing. To oh, you're not just still using it. You give us hope for the next generation <laughs> that, you know, you, you got it. It's a good season. I will say, especially Beautiful. for women in ministry, it's a good season. It is. I and um, I've been excited to see some of the things my awesome. uh, fellow alums from DTS have been doing, but just women in general. So today we are launching into kind of a two-part conversation. And this first part is about a book that you um, have just written, and it's Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. And in this book, you take a fresh look at 1 Timothy 2.15, She Shall Be Saved Through Childbearing. You do this by examining the biblical, cultural, historical context of Paul's words, and specifically Artemis of the Ephesians. And so I want to start our conversation by asking you, sometimes the, the beginning question can be an obvious one, but a necessary one. Why write a book on such a few words in Scripture? Yeah, that's a great question. It comes out of my own journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, my husband and I, I'm, I'm, let me back up. I'm the fourth of five kids. If you've ever seen the sound of music, music, whether it was the, uh, you know, Julie Andrews or Carrie Underwood, my mom was that awesome. She was just a great mom to five kids. And I had no aspirations for myself other than marriage and family. I, I just loved being her kid and the, we backpacked the Grand Canyon. We made daisy chains. We learned how to sing and write poetry and play outside in a fort. And when my husband and I uh, hit the brick wall of infertility, it was a huge shock to me that had, if anything, I'd envisioned, you know, Susanna Wesley had 19 children. My worry had been if I have, you know, what am I going to do if I have 15? But it never occurred to me there might be none. And then I was completely unprepared for what uh, marital, emotional, financial, financial, ethical dilemma that it presented the the constant grief cycle within a bigger grief cycle of the monthly cycle, right? But within the years, the long cycle. But what I was most unprepared for was the spiritual crisis, because I came from a tradition 
that held up motherhood rightly, but really presented safe through childbearing as this is where a woman channels all her gifts is into the nuclear family. There wasn't really a vision for using your spiritual gifts, particularly if, particularly if you have the gift of teaching, that those gifts were designed for you to channel to your kids. And I never pulled the camera back long enough to go, wait, that eliminates single women, uh, which, and then I'd studied church history and saw how virginity and celibacy was so emphasized in the first century church. And I'm like, they were definitely not reading this that way, that this was like the woman's, you know, ultimate. And again, I don't in any way want to minimize parenting or mothering. It's just, I do want to minimize that the idea that's for every woman and it's God's only and best calling. And the teaching that I received was rooted in Paul's little phrase, she'll be saved through childbearing. And since we knew Paul, when he talks about salvation, you know, when he's talking about eternal salvation, he always means by grace through faith. So we understood he's not talking about you'll be saved from judgment by having children. So then it was spiritualized into she'll be saved from obscurity. She'll be saved from, you know, delivered from ambition. Um, and so I started going to seminary, not because I envisioned myself as a teacher in the church, because that was not on my paradigm. I had to know how much of this is cultural, how much of this is Southern culture, how much of this was my church subculture. And to be frank with you, I was okay no matter where it ended up. I just had to know. Like, am I pushy broad if I try to do this in the church or am I responsible for gifts I'm not using? I got to know. And I feel like understanding what in the world Paul meant by say through childbearing is a big key for me here. So that's what drove the research. Yeah. I mean, I think we think about Paul's influence uh, in the church and for a lot of people, Paul is a complicated figure. Yeah. And I think he's complicated for many of the reasons that you have mentioned. And just to see you take this deep dive to answer a genuine question, is what I'm being told accurate or does it deserve a fresh look or a fresh approach? Um, and that fresh approach led you to ask questions about Artemis. Um, so can you tell us who like, is what Artemis? What does that have to do? Yeah, what does that <laughs> have to do? Yeah. And why she was such an important person for you to study yeah. to answer your questions. Great. Yeah, otherwise, like, what are those have to do? One of these doesn't belong. So the first hint I got that Artemis was the key to understanding this little enigmatic phrase came not from archaeology or the inscriptions. It came from the book of Acts. In Acts 17, you have a really long description of those spiritual context in the city of Ephesus. And we know when Paul wrote, she'll be saved through childbearing, he's writing to Timothy, who he's left in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 1.3 says, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. So when you, the first question is, well, what was the doctrine that Timothy would have been fighting that would have been on Paul's mind when he wrote this letter. Does the scripture give us any clue? And it gives us huge clues. There are two major events that are recorded in Acts. The first is what I like to call the original bonfire of the vanities, when all these magic workers, which magic was illegal in, in the Roman Empire, except Ephesus really got a nod. So it was magic central. And 
So the magic workers came to Jesus and they brought very expensive books of incantation and magic arts and burned them uh, in a very public bonfire. And that's the first story. And then after that, you have silver workers that are making little shrines to Artemis because Ephesus is ground zero for the Artemis cult. You had the one of the seven wonders of the world, in fact, considered the, the greatest of the seven wonders of the ancient world was her temple, which Paul would have seen as he sailed into the Ephesus harbor from probably about 10 miles away, which is shining there on the coast and beautiful and yeah. probably four times the size of the uh, Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens. So just ginormous temple. And not only was it religiously important, but we know that, you know, people didn't have banks Mm -hmm. in the first century. So if you were semi-wealthy, you worried constantly about thieves stealing, breaking in and stealing. Mm -hmm. But if you could sail to Ephesus with your goods, the temple there had guardians and it had soldiers, you know, people who were a good security system. So very wealthy people would come from all over the empire and deposit stuff at the temple. So knowing this was, uh, that magic and Artemis worship were a big part of the spiritual culture there. I dove into first finding out who was Artemis in antiquity, just, excuse me, just in general, like in Homer, and then narrowing down all the evidence I could find that was limited to within 100 years of Paul. In other words, if Homer said Artemis carried a bow and arrow, are they still saying that at the time of Paul? What what remained and what didn't remain? So basically, I had to try to figure out how do I solve for X? Who was Artemis, Mm -hmm. not just in the 7th century BC in Ephesus? I had to know who was she when Paul was there. And a big source for that is not just the book of Acts, although that points you to where you need to look, but the inscriptions, the writings in stone and marble, uh, we have about a half a million of them in the Roman Empire. The Romans loved to write things. And if you think about walking through a graveyard today, we have something similar. You get a real sense of how long somebody lived. Uh, how long people were living, how many infants are dying in certain eras. And the inscriptions give us a lot of that kind of information. One of the surprises for me was I had gone into it thinking magic was one and Artemis was another. And then I found inscriptions that had incantations relating to Artemis and realized the two are connected. So Artemis and the dark arts. And then if you think about Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 6 talks about an arrow, right? <laughs> the fiery arrows of the devil. Yeah. If you're that's like saying to kryptonite to Superman followers. You don't actually have to say Superman for people to pick up on. If you're talking about arrows in Ephesus, we we know who you're talking about. Uh, Artemis was no friend to Christians. Uh, and so all of that was what led me to look at who is she in antiquity and what are the stories in Homer and other famous writers say, and then narrowing it down to what are the writers at the time of Paul? What do the inscriptions say at the time of Paul? What do the coins say or or represent at the time of Paul? And all that to say, I discovered in Ephesus and only in Ephesus, she took on a persona of a midwife. And the reason for that was because that's where the myth says she was born. 
And so in the same way that Bethlehem is connected to a natal event in a way that Jerusalem isn't, even though Jesus's incarnation is believed in Jerusalem, in Ephesus, there was an annual month set aside to celebrate Artemis. There were parades for her natal events. It's her natal city. And people would come from all over the empire to worship her. And women, uh, their number one fear is childbirth. It's the number one cause of death for women. For men, it's war, but for women, it's childbirth. Think of anyone you know who had a C-section and imagine she would not have survived. Anybody who writhed in pain uh, and maybe tore, you know, had a traumatic birth and bled. There's no way to stop that. It's a huge risk. It's women's number one fear. And as we well know, fear is a very big motivator. So I imagine Paul's number one challenge with women in Ephesus is, you want me to give up praying to the goddess of midwifery? You want me to give up my spiritual midwife and assume that Jesus is better? And Paul's saying, absolutely. Absolutely, Jesus is way better. Uh, and and so I think he's going up against the biggest fear. And I think he's even uh, saying to Timothy, we have to remember, this is a personal letter to Timothy. It has certainly ramifications. It's scripture for all of us, but it changes the approach to maybe a letter like Romans or Ephesians that's written to a whole church. All the, the, the you, 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 you are singular. He's talking to one person except for the very last line of the book. And it's assumed then there are greetings to y'all, but he's telling Timothy, uh, she'll be safe through childbearing if she basically continues in the faith. And I think he is saying a Christian woman who trusts Jesus to deliver her is not going to die. He's not saying it for all time. He's not saying it for all situations. And honestly, you don't even have to agree with me on where I landed. I think what I really wanted people to see was there is more than one way to interpret this. And the ways we've been interpreting this to apply to the nuclear family do not fit the whole Mm -hmm. counsel of God. Paul tells the Corinthians to think about staying single. Why would he do that if a woman is saved through childbearing? He'd be telling everybody to get married. But the young widows in Ephesus, he wants them to get married. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of single women in Ephesus. And you wonder now, why would that be? Well, if your goddess is a virgin, a confirmed virgin, and we do tend to be like who we worship or what we worship, that just kind of makes sense. I think what's fascinating about your research is how you show really the power of stepping outside of our world and stepping into their world. Um, and how often and easy it is for us to just approach scripture. We all come to scripture with a lens. And so I think for us to know that, um, but also it's 2023 and the things that are normative to us in our age, we're not normative to the people in Paul's age. And so we get to these passages that are confusing to us for good reason. They weren't written, I always say scripture was written for us, but not to us. Um, And so we do our jobs to study and learn the context as best as we can to be able to understand the original meaning as best as we can. And in even as in my time studying with you in class and, and hearing you talk through so many same things, it is that Paul is addressing a really practical fear that was yes. prevalent in his culture. Yes. And we find the practice. He's a friend to women. <laughs> it's a friend. Like he cares. He cares. Yeah. Yes. Um, and how we have put things um, 
on like the you talked about the nuclear family, you know, and that is something that is true to our contemporary modern culture, even yes. if we look back to Jewish culture, uh, that it would have been a whole community of people yes. that they had a really rich theology of family. Um, and so like some of the the interpretations come from uh, a misplaced context understanding. And so just to exactly. to hear you give us just a little bit, I know you go into much more detail in the book, to me is is the power of stepping back and saying, who are these people? What were they dealing with? What were they going through? And how does that contribute to the messages that receive that we know were for their good, that we trust that these authors are writing for the good of the people? And yeah. so before we start to distrust them, maybe let's ask more questions about the interpretations that we're coming to in the text. Mm-hmm. Catherine, as you hear Dr. Glan kind of share ab- about, you know, Artemis and this idea of context, what thoughts come to mind for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I... I mean, I can be totally honest. I was like, what What does this have to do with, um, yeah. you know, being saved through childbearing? And um, I found it really interesting just looking at the history of um, what you were able to dig up and, and give you context for the cult, almost like stepping into the culture of that time. And it really does get just give more breadth to understanding why would Paul say these words to this people at this time. And it's like the the defenses can kind of break down a little bit because you're seeing, no, Paul's actually writing a caring word to them. He's mm-hmm. speaking to the lies that they're believing. Yeah. yeah. And saying Jesus is better. Yeah. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And I mean, I, because again, this is, I just, I really like Paul and I like how he engages culture. And so you even see this when he's in the Areopagus and he preaches the gospel without going through the story of scripture because he's like, I'm going to use your language, your ideas, and your words to show you why they don't work. And so we see he's a master of culture. We see him do this thing where he takes these these phrases in culture. And in my Elizabeth translation, he kind of flips them (laughs) for Jesus. Yes, Uh, he does. And so he teaches us so much about what it means to really know the people you're trying to serve. And to answer the question, and you've said it a couple of times, Dr. Glan, why Jesus is better. Because we are asking people to give up real things when they come to the That's gospel. Right. And Amen. that we address That's their right. real concerns of, okay, if I come to Jesus and I don't have this, what's going to happen? Yeah. And uh, what we see modeled for us is that Jesus, in fact, is better. Uh, the gospel is better. But you have written this book for a specific audience, right? So I think that there is fruit from some of these ideas about the role of women in society in terms of, you know, finding value simply through motherhood, being a wife, um, what that means for us in our ability to serve in ministry. And so if someone are wondering, who is this book written for? Kind of who did you have in mind as you're sitting in front of the computer and typing out these words? Who would, Who is that person? The person I pray for is the person who, like me, has, uh, from whatever source, received the message that she's less than if she's not married, she's less than if she doesn't have kids or can't have kids, or even if she doesn't care to have kids. Um, Also, I think it, even interestingly enough, is should encourage the person who's not in a nuclear family. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't love that? But that 
you're you're absolutely right. It, Paul's thinking way bigger than that. The church family, the church is your mother, father, sisters, and brothers. And Jesus even said, if you don't leave these, you know, if you don't love these less than me, uh, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And so, and that's Pauline too. Like Paul picks up on that teaching. And so to find in the body of Christ some of those needs met uh, and to be free to then say, what are my gifts? How can I use them for the body of Christ? How can I spend my life giving and receiving? Uh, each one of us has been given spiritual gifts. What are they? To uh, It's written to the person who's afraid she has to hide her gifts. It's written to the pastor who wants to know, where do I help women flourish? Uh, you know, so often I, I meet pastors who care about women, but they think the thing we need most is to be guarded against feminism and radical feminism is a threat, but there's also a threat of misogyny. And the women that mm. I meet most of the time need the opposite. They need to be told, you are accountable for your gifts. You need to use them. You need to uh, hone them. You need to spend them. Uh, take take wings and fly, sister. Yeah, yeah it's that God loves women. And yeah. he yes. has intentionally yes. designed us and given us gifts to benefit the body. Um, and it it makes me sad for lots of different reasons when I see women full of so much potential that don't get the space to use that. Um, and the space is variable, right? So it's 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 where sure, God sure. puts you, but it just is that you, for whatever reason, um, believe, have internalized this belief that, oh, that's not for me, that I'm kind of the background right. team and men are yes. the foreground. Yes. I'm just here to make sure they're able to do what they need to do. And it's like, we want to support and love our brothers, but God is something right. for you to do, yep. sister. We need to hear God's truth and learn about who God is from your perspective too. Um, and just the need to trace the ideas. Because that's what I see you doing in this book yeah. is, Thanks. it's one of my, I, there are a couple of questions I like to ask people. And one of them is like, where did you get that from? Hmm. Where did you get that idea from? We don't live in a vacuum. Our ideas come from somewhere. And so even in the book, you you trace, okay, how have women been viewed, not just in our modern, like let's not give feminism too much credit. <laughs> right. Like Let's yep. actually trace the ideas and see, yep. oh, Maybe some of the people that we love and quote a lot who have really good ideas maybe influence some of the not so good ideas we have about women. And how do we process that and deal with that? And really, the knowing history helps us see our present so much clearer. But also, don't you think international travel in that I know for me, uh, I had one view of Proverbs 31 until I went to a very rural part of Kenya and thought, you know, it is just not going to work for me to say she stays in the hut and he goes outside of the <laughs> hut. <laughs> just for me to tell her she can't go to the Agora and sell her vegetables because, you know, commerce is a guy's job. It's like breaking down, okay, I got some American thinking. And it will amuse you to know that, yes, I'm a seminary professor today, but there was a day when I believe women shouldn't even learn Hebrew and Greek because those are for the guys. Uh, so it's been a little bit of a character arc for me, <laughs> again, having to go back to Genesis 1 going, where did I go wrong? Where did I, where did I get this? Yeah. Like what we believe about scripture can't just be true for us in our context. Bingo. Has to yep, be true for everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if it doesn't yep. work for everybody, yeah. then maybe we should ask some questions. Maybe. Good questions. Maybe we should. Maybe yeah. we should ask some questions. Yeah. Well, I want to kind of move us to a second part of our conversation that you 
jumped into a little bit when you shared the reason why you wrote uh, this book. And that is from your own personal experience, your own personal experience yeah. of navigating motherhood, navigating infertility. Um, and I think it would just be really sweet for our listeners to hear a little bit more about that journey and okay. then how that uh, shaped your understanding of who God is as you're walking through those struggles. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'll tell you one of the biggest things, you know, I, I said that it was a decade for us. And one of the things I was taught as a new believer was an acrostic for how to pray, ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, which is great, except that it leaves out the number one kind of prayer in Psalms, which is the lament. Mm. And I had been taught, I don't know if I picked it up by osmosis or somebody actually said it, but I've been taught, you don't ask God questions and you don't get mad at God. And I was stunned when a pastor said, where do you think we get, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus was quoting David. Was David forsaken? No, he was not. And so I started looking through the Psalms going, I have permission to pray this? Really? <laughs> you know, looking at, at uh, you know, verses like, you have pulled back your bow and you shot your arrows at me. I think that was Jeremiah. I'm like, wow, God didn't do lightning on that one. Um, and so discovering that uh, anger, frustration, grief, all of that was not only how God created us, but that God had provided a guide for how to pray when I didn't even have the words. Yeah. And it was it was angrier and more intense than I had thought I had permission to do. And in the process, discovered God is way bigger emotionally than I gave him credit for. And that God doesn't need me to defend him. God doesn't need, doesn't need me to explain him or try. Um, I, that I had it backwards. I was the little one. God was the big one. And, and that he has no needs. Um, and it definitely required me to go back to Genesis and say, okay, I was made in God's image, but even by Genesis 3 and the fall, I had I had separated work is for men and baby making is for women. Mm -hmm. And I didn't catch that the that the curse of the ground, uh, it basically women and men work and it takes two to tango to have a baby <laughs> and that you know it the curse affected us men and women but it also affected that partnership of men and women and even though thank god i had a just lovely husband through the whole thing he's just wonderful and a treasure uh but there i didn't even have a healthy view of partnering in ministry with my brothers um it was much more don't talk to them be separate from them and so romans 16 had me scratching my head because Paul is saying, Rufus's mom is a mom to me, and I'm sending you Lydia and, you know, Tryphena and Tryphosa, they're partners. And you're like, wait, what? Okay, <laughs> where did I get this? Some of it was purity culture. Some of it was Southern culture. Some of it was very fundamentalist uh, Christian culture that when I became a new believer, plugged into a really pretty conservative church. But it was the only gospel preaching church I had been to, and I've just bought everything I heard. I didn't know how to, like the Thessalonians, search things out. So it's definitely been a journey. Uh, I'll, I'll say one other thing that I've learned about God through it, and that is none of the 
explanations for why suffering happens satisfied me. I knew, yes, God's building my character. He does that. Yes, he's going to be glorified. He does that. But honestly, the only thing that truly comforted me was it's a mystery. You know, Job gets taken on a nature walk and God never does tell him why he lost his kids, lost all that. He's like, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Do you know where I store the snow? Do you know how the sun gets up every morning? Um, a lot of people read that and think it's cold. I found it very comforting. If if God is as far beyond me as the heavens are above the earth, then all I need to know is he loves me that much too. His love is as great as, you know, the height of the heavens. Yeah. 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 This the the ability for us to to be present in the really, really hard and painful spaces. Uh, I see uh, people struggle to be there because they don't have the words or they don't like, they don't know about lament. Um, and you know, that I should just be able to either stuff it or move forward or to put a smile on my face. And it's like, there are some things that there are no answers for. Um, and then our best thing in loving people is not to provide answers, but to be present with them and the truth of the magnitude, let God be an answer for all the things. Um, and the bigness of who he is. Yeah. Um, Catherine, one of the reasons that you're with us today is because infertility is part of your journey too. Um, and so as you hear Dr. Glan share her story, kind of what was that experience like for you and how did it shape how you view God? I can relate a lot to um, what Dr. Glenn said about the cycles of grief, where it's been about four years for my husband and I of trying and just not being able to fulfill the plans that we had for our own life. And um, one of the things that I have realized in the, the heavy parts of that journey are that when I am in heartbreak, when I feel the weight of empty arms. It's an opportunity to commune with mm -hmm. the Lord that um, it's not that he's left me somewhere. It's that it's, it is sad and it is hard. And there are days when I'm angry and it doesn't make sense. And um, I've learned that an answer isn't what's going to bring me peace. Um, his presence is what I need and that it actually is good enough. And it actually is the better thing. But man, it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah. And what I, what I, I'm single, never married. Um, and so, you know, my journey of the place of difficulty is trying to navigate being single in spaces where that's not normative, i.e. the church. Um, and so what I appreciate about both of y'all's stories is the idea that it's the journey. It's not this instantaneous thing. Um, that there is this space for there to be the the anger and the frustration, the honesty of the emotions before the Lord, and He accepts us in that place. Um, I always tell folks He already knows, <laughs> so that we would bring it to Him. Um, and like you said, His presence is what's best. That we get God Himself, the fullness of His character, in that moment with us, and it is not a, a static, but it's dynamic. It's a spiritual. Um, experience that we have with the Lord and and how healing that that is. Part of what makes, um, I think, dynamics of infertility complicated is because of the context of the Christian community. Um, and so, and you mentioned it, Dr. Glan, and I saw your head nodding, Catherine. Um, 
this idea that motherhood is connected to how we value and give identity to women. I mean, I would even add being a wife. So to be a yeah. wife, be a woman in the yeah. church uh, is to be a wife and to be a mother. Um, and really, you can even tie into this idea of the cultural mandate. You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. So we need you to be multiplying. How has your journey impacted how you understand those categories of what does it mean in God's kingdom for us to be women, where we find identity and purpose, and how is it maybe attached or not attached to some places that we've been told to find those things in the past? I remember somebody had asked my husband and me to go on a short-term mission, and I was really torn because we were scheduled for some medical treatment we would have to put off, and you know, every month the clock is ticking. Um, And as I was reading that morning, I came across Isaiah 56, where God is talking to the eunuchs Mm. uh, who are serving him, but did not reproduce. And and this is Old Testament, right? So it's not just that the Old Testament is biological and the New Testament is spiritual. In the Old Testament, the message to the eunuchs is, you keep my Sabbath, you follow me, I'll make you a name that is better than children that won't be forgotten. Mm. Uh, And how shocking that was to me. Uh, and gen- then to ch- just trace that, it's like a minor chord through the Old Testament. It's not a major emphasis. Mm-hmm. The major emphasis seems to be more on the physical line, but still there are those whispers. But you get to the New Testament and Paul is single, Jesus is single, you know, motherhood, if it's an important thing, you don't know if Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla were parents. You don't know if Lydia was a parent or yeah. Phoebe, I think I said Lydia earlier when I met Phoebe, but um, yeah, nothing is said about them being mothers. It's not the the thing that's emphasized. What's emphasized is making disciples, multiplying disciples. And I think now when I look back in Genesis, I realize he wanted the earth to be filled with the glory of God. God wanted the earth to be filled with worshipers. And that is something everyone, every woman, but everyone can do. And make disciples seems to be a big shift or an emphasis in the New Testament that you don't have in the Old Testament. And, you know, the irony to me that I didn't even think women should learn the the languages, and here I am a seminary prof, clearly there's been a a little bit of hard-headedness having to change and repent and, you know, readjust my views of things. But some of it is rooted in exactly that question, Elizabeth, what what does it mean to be fruitful? Mm -hmm. And recognizing you're not just spiritualizing it when you say having a fruitful life for the kingdom. It's actually what Jesus says to the people as he's getting ready to ascend. Uh, He doesn't even say, go make converts. He says, go Mm -hmm. make disciples of all the nations. Uh, So that's been a big shift, I think, in seeing where he has an idea in Genesis that's presented and carried through Scripture to the end, to the garden. I think one other thing that uh, has been a blessing to me is uh, I had a brother who was a a celibate uh, male prop at DTS, uh, where I teach, and he said, in the kingdom, we will not be reproducing. Mm -hmm. And he saw himself as being ahead of the game (laughs) by being single and saying, the reason we don't need to reproduce in the kingdom is because there's no death. Mm -hmm. And I, he said, I'm living a life that says, that death is going to die. I'm just sort of already there. But I think, one more thing I want to say, 
And that is whether you've been through infertility or not, whether you've been single or not, whether you've lost somebody you love, like whatever you're going through, it seems to constantly point back to two questions. Is God good? Will I trust him? Mm. Is God good? Will I trust him? And how do I know God's good? I've got to go to the cross every day and go, I don't understand it, but I know that he gave every single thing for my need. Yeah, something that I'm thinking about is how if it were true that, you know, the the way that as a woman I am supposed to um, multiply and make disciples was through having, mm-hmm. you know, a family, it brings with that a great deal of frustration with my body mm-hmm. because when it stopped doing what it's supposed to do, when it's not working the way it's supposed to work, I'm like, okay, if this is what I am made for and my body's not fulfilling that, how do I fix this body that's God is, that God has given me? And what do I need to, to find, you know, to, to fix this problem? And I mean, I went on a journey to try to fix what I thought was broken, right? Like, okay, God gave me this mandate. I'm going to go and like do whatever I can. And not that it's wrong to seek medical um you know, attention sure. and treatment and whatnot. But um, when we got to a place of exhaustion, I kind of got to a place of like, okay, I'm throwing my hands up, God. Like, I've done what I can. And so uh, actually looking back at Genesis um, and seeing how, you know, a lot of people will bring up um, just like the story of Sarah and how she waited and cried out to the Lord. And it was, she thought it was a joke when God said she'd have a child and and how God's promise to her to bear a child was because Jesus needed to be born, like a savior was coming. <laughs> that has been fulfilled. Yeah. And so my my greatest calling is not to have a child. Uh, my greatest calling is, you know, what Jesus says to go and make disciples. And because I am a disciple of Jesus, I am putting myself in Jesus' hands of, I don't get a say of what that looks like, um, but I can trust that it's still good. Yeah. Good word. Good word. Amen. Such, such good wisdom. Y'all's comments bring me to this, this place of our walk with the Lord where it gets complicated. Um, And the complicated questions and situations don't have simple answers. And so, and you both have come to it. It's whatever questions I'm asking, whatever I'm struggling through, I have to come to this place in order to move forward that God is good and he's trustworthy and his ways are best. I do not have all the answers. God, you're good. You're trustworthy. His ways are best. Um, And the things that I really, really wish my life contained and they don't, God, you're good. You're trustworthy. Your ways are best. Um, and that to see that God created us to do something, and that's to to create worshipers. Uh, this idea that you see this this temple kind of language in Genesis one that He's creating the space for Himself to be worshipped, um, and there is plenty of opportunity for us in this world to be able to bring people into awareness. I think even about Israel, that they were situated to point people, to, to point the nation to the one true God. We're going to yeah. show you what you don't know how to do, what sin blinds your eyes to you. And while your best life is in following Jesus, and I'm going to show you that, um, and that is the same task that's been given to us today. Uh, and that's, we find our identity 
and being worshipers of God, in, in, in multiplying worshipers of God, we find our identity in the things that are connected to Christ. Um, and to me, there's a lot of freedom in that. There's a lot of beauty in that. There's a lot of God's created us with intentional. Our stories are different. Our personalities, our experiences, and all of that comes together to create intentional opportunities wherever you're at that nothing is wasted. Um, even the really, really hard moments are wasted. And so, you know, I, I know we've got somebody listening to us right now who's walking through a season of infertility. And so what words of encouragement would you all provide to them as they're listening and saying, oh, that, that sounds good. That sounds good for y'all. But I'm still struggling to get to that place of, God, you're good. Your, your, your ways are best and you're worth still following. You are not alone. I will never leave you. Uh, I created you for myself. And without me, there's going to be a void. Uh, but I, no matter what, you can hate me, <laughs> you can love me, but I'm not leaving. Yeah, I think um, something that has encouraged me is that when I get to the end of myself and when I'm weary of being weary, mm. I can look to the one who never grows weary of hearing my cries. And so I think I would tell um, her that it takes time and God is not tired of hearing your cries about it. Mm-hmm. And that we really do find healing in Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have any resources helped you all through the journey? Um, and so any books that you recommend, Dr. Glenn, I know you've written some on this topic, um, but Catherine, I'm sure you have stepped through the books too. So what resources would you guys maybe offer to someone to help them wrap their mind around the season that they're walking through? Um, I think the the best resource I recommend is being embodied with other people going through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can become a very Gnostic sort of yeah. disembodied experience where you live in the world of ideas. And you know, I love what you said, Catherine, about God not growing tired because often uh, what we what I found in my research it's not 100 percent this way, but usually it's the wife with the high word count and the husband going, "Are we not done talking about this yet?" Now, 20 percent of the time it's the other way around, but usually. Uh, it's the wife needing to process because it it affects her body more, even if there's male infertility. Mm-hmm. And so to to find that friend who who knows what it's like and to and and maybe say take some of the word count away from the husband wife relationship. <laughs> yeah, I cannot emphasize how important community is when you're walking through infertility because it is this thing where some days it's hard and some days you feel kind of okay and then something happens and you it's like a trigger that you didn't even see coming yeah. and yeah. you just sometimes need somewhere to turn to um and that can look like having you know a, a spiritual mom you mm-hmm. know speak into your life yeah. and comfort you or sometimes that looks like seeking resources and one of the books that I've been uh, reading recently is walking through infertility by Matthew Arbo um and that's been uh that book was the one that kind of talks more about discipleship as like the main calling of a believer. And um, yeah, it gave me a lot of freedom and like, okay, wow, my life actually can be fruitful outside of having a family. And, but yeah, can't, can't celebrate the idea of having just community around you. So important. So huge. So huge. Makes all the difference Um, for all the, the moments of struggle. Um, so I've been yeah. for my single folks community there too. I want to end us on um, 
this question, Dr. Galan, uh, because you spent a lot of time learning about a lot of women through church mm. history. Yeah. Do you have a favorite? Praxedes. You're like, who is that? <laughs> so Praxedes and Pudenziana are sisters who never married. They, uh, the name Pudens shows up at the end of Second Timothy. We think he was in Rome and discipled by Peter, and they are probably his granddaughters, some kind of descendant relationship. So they're still on the land in Rome of probably the the first or second church of Rome. You know, you got First Baptist Church, Dallas, <laughs> Willard, you know, first church of Rome, second church of Rome. Praxedes and Pudenziana were not martyred for their faith, but what they did do was anytime someone was martyred, they would rush in, collect the body parts, uh, wash them, and do anti-Gnosticism and, and say, I'm going to give this person a decent burial. Uh, yes, their spirit is with God, but we also, as Christians, have a physical resurrection, a physical incarnation, a physical ascension, and our bodies are going to be physically raised. So we are going to celebrate the human body as a gift from God. And they were they experienced some persecution for their faith. And there's a beautiful mosaic, a ninth century mosaic in the church of Praxedes in Rome, where Jesus is in the middle, and Paul has his arm around one sister and is commending her to Jesus. He's literally touching her shoulder. And Peter has his arm around the other uh -huh. sister and is commending her to Jesus. And when I walked in and went, are you kidding? Brothers and sisters who aren't afraid to hug in the ninth century. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Praxedes. Come on. An example for all of us. Uh, hugs are okay. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And brothers commending sisters to Christ, That's right? Huge. Just a beautiful yeah. partnership yeah. of men and women. Uh, yeah, that, that that church uh, shows in its art yeah. is meaningful mm -hmm. to me. Now, what we have through the, the page of scripture is that men and women serving together is a good yes. thing that God designed from beautiful. the very beginning. Yes. That we need each other, brothers and sisters, yeah. to flourish in this world. Um, yeah. And sometimes we come to situations or messages that we hear from people that maybe don't point in that direction. And we ask questions about that. And what I appreciate about today's conversation is it all started with this question, it seems like for you, Dr. Glon, of what I'm hearing, is this, is this God's good in design? If it is, I'm willing to, to submit myself to that way. But if it's not, maybe there's something better. Uh, and how that question took you down this deep dive, how this question gave information about context and a fresh look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.15, but ultimately how this deep dive and question answering gave you an opportunity to speak life into a season that for many women is difficult and to say your value, your identity, your purpose is not found in you bearing children. That's wonderful, but your identity and value is found in being a worshiper and an image bearer, a multiplier spiritually um, in this world. And that we would say, that is where I'm called to be, no matter where I'm at, no matter the season, no matter what's going on. And that we would learn to ask good questions of the text and say, Lord, I know you have good things for me. I know you are trustworthy and I know your way is best. And in the moments where I wonder if those things are true, Lord, lead me back home to the place to not just believe with my mind, but to be, have conviction in my heart. And no matter the season, no matter the struggles, no matter where I'm at, you are good, you are trustworthy, and your way is best. Thank you, Dr. Glon. Thank you, Catherine. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. For joining us and sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from The Good Podcast Company. 
If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social and check the show notes for more information, how best to connect with us, as well as connect with our guest and ways to support her work, especially her new book, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. See y'all next time.